chatradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of media reports on the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first without the hype and distortion and biases typical of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric illness and needing treatment for it. Welcome back to the show, folks. This is the Wednesday, January 22nd, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today, originally airing at 7 p.m. on that date on AmericasWebRadio.com, coming to you anytime you want, downloading the podcast on that website. And of course, as usual, let me give a shout out to those of you who download the podcast on iTunes. Thank you so much for your loyal listenership. Again, I know I always say it, but I really mean it when I say I can't tell you how much your loyal listenership means to me. Thanks so much. And as I always say, I'm always interested to hear feedback about the show from those of you who are listening. And feel free to send me that feedback or your questions about mental health-related issues, whether that's a problem you're having or someone else close to you is having, uh, to me here at America's Web Radio. Send it to me to this email address, Dr. Scott, that's spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. It's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. And as always, rest assured that any message you send me, if you need me to give you my feedback on the following week's show, I will absolutely make sure that all information is kept confidential, that nothing potentially revealing about you would be uh, said on the air. All right, well, let's get to this week's topics. And as usual, I have so much to talk to you about. I actually wanted to talk about this last week, but ran out of time. Uh, but this item really, really caught my eye. An article that said, just eating one week of junk food could impair your memory. Think about that. Well, obviously, we're going to go into the details, but it definitely caught my eye because I have always espoused the point of view that uh, the old saying, garbage in, garbage out, is very true. Meaning, folks, if you eat poorly, you're not going to feel well mentally, not just physically. Likewise, if you eat a good diet, you will feel better mentally and emotionally as well as physically. And this question comes up quite often in my practice. People ask me, well, what else can I do to feel better mentally and emotionally besides take medication and go see a therapist or a counselor? Well, there's lots more you can do. Exercise, chief among them, but as crucial as that is, 
eating well is also extremely important. Again, you eat badly, you're going to feel badly. So let's take a look at this research then that uh, strives to document this adage. So if you're having lapses in memory or trouble concentrating, junk food could be to blame. The new study comes from the University of New South Wales in Australia, where researchers show that a diet high in fat and sugar may restrict cognitive abilities after just one week. It is hoped the discovery could improve the current understanding of how obesity and excessive weight gain affect the body. For some time, researchers have suspected a link between obesity and psychiatric complications like depression. However, it has not been clear whether unhealthy eating habits actually affect the brain. The new study is published in the journal Brain, Behavior, and Immunity, and it sought to clarify this issue by evaluating cognitive changes in rats fed a diet high in sugar and fat. Now, I know what you're going to say. What, we're talking about rat research? Yes, folks, I know. Um, it's a rat brain, not a human brain, but believe it or not, there are many homologies, meaning many similarities, and it is reasonable uh, to start researching this with a much, much less complex mammalian brain as a model, uh, and then you can use the information you get as a further basis to investigate the issue in humans. So for one week, the subjects were assigned one of three meal plans, a healthy diet, an unhealthy diet emphasizing cake, chips, and biscuits, or a healthy diet taken with sugar water. The first and the second meal plan represented the control and the treatment group, respectively. The third plan was an experimental diet aimed at isolating the effect of just excessive sugar intake. The researchers found that in both the treatment group and the experimental group, again, those that had the um, adverse diets, subjects exhibited cognitive impairments after only one week. Now, these impairments typically manifested as a reduced ability to recognize certain objects. The results suggest that even a temporary diet high in sugar and fat may have alarming consequences. What is so surprising about this research is the speed with which the deterioration of the cognition occurred. This preliminary data also suggests that the damage is not reversed when the rats were switched back to a healthy diet, which obviously is very concerning. In addition, these rats have signs of inflammation in their brain's hippocampal area. The hippocampus is a structure associated with special, uh, I'm sorry, spatial rather, memory, <clears throat> deep in the center of the brain and the temporal lobe. This suggests that the inflammatory responses recorded in obese people may not be limited to fat tissue. And really, that's the link that we know of already between obesity and many health complications, including psychiatric complications. The increased 
levels of inflammatory proteins uh, or signs of inflammation in the body. Uh, this is found to be increased in fat tissue, and this leads to increased circulation of these inflammatory proteins in general in the body. Now, this study isn't the first to implicate unhealthy eating in adverse psychiatric outcomes. An earlier study done by the University of Toronto showed that advertisements and symbols associated with fast food restaurants, such as McDonald's or Wendy's, actually impair our ability to savor the moment. That research argued that those establishments undermine the surplus time they permit by instilling a type of chronic impatience in their customers. That's a somewhat different issue. I'm not sure why it was mentioned in this article. Regardless, this new study hopefully will help more people realize that many consequences of excessive sugar and fat intake, nutrition affects the brain at every age, it's critical as we get older, and it may be important in preventing cognitive decline. An elderly person with poor diet is more likely to have problems. At any age, your thinking and memory, your mind, it'll all work better. If you eat better, you avoid a diet high in fat and sugar. All right. This next item, sticking with the theme of uh, what common things in the diet may affect your memory, here's some more good news about coffee. What I mean by that, you know that uh, for years coffee used to get a bad rap, all these negative research articles about it, and uh, that was years ago. In recent times, coffee is everybody's darling. It's found to have a lot of very healthful effects on the body on, and on the mind. And this latest research is that your daily coffee just might jolt your memory in a good way. Now, swarms of morning commuters clutch cups of coffee to kickstart the workday. But a new study suggests caffeine might do more for the brain than boost alertness. It may help memory too. Researchers from Johns Hopkins University looked at caffeine's impact on memory while excluding its other brain-enhancing factors. The study showed that caffeine enhances certain memories for up to 24 hours after it's consumed. The finding that caffeine has an effect on this process, the process of making memories more permanent, less forgettable, was one of the big novelties of this research. The study was funded by United States National Institutes of Health and the United States National Science Foundation, so it was not supported by any coffee industry or coffee lobby. The um, study included 100 participants who were caffeine naive, meaning they were not big or habitual coffee, tea, or cola drinkers. Uh, they picked people who were getting less than 500 milligrams of caffeine in a week. Most of them were not coffee drinkers. Most had a soda maybe once or twice a week. Coffee's caffeine content varies greatly. Most average-sized cups contain about 160 milligrams of caffeine, but 
a 16-ounce cup of Starbucks coffee packs 330 milligrams of caffeine. That would be a grande. Uh, that, according to the Center for Science and the Public Interest. A dose of at least 200 milligrams of caffeine was needed to enhance memory consolidation. For this study, which was published online in the January 12 issue of Nature Neuroscience, researchers asked participants to look at hundreds of common everyday images on a computer screen, shoes, a chair, a rubber duck, etc. And that's uh, how they got the project started and what they used to assess memory. All right, we'll go into more details about the study design and what the results were after we come back from this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, talking about research that showed your daily cup of coffee might enhance your memory. Now, researchers gave the participants who were not big coffee drinkers, not big caffeine intakers, some pictures of certain objects they wanted them to recognize. They asked their subjects to tell if it was an indoor or an outdoor object. But that was all they were asking. Didn't want to know what it was. Just wanted them to attend to the object, get the object into your brain. Five minutes 
after they showed the participants these images, half of them were given 200 milligrams of caffeine, which again was what they found was supposed to be the effective dose, and the other half got a placebo, in other words, no caffeine. They brought them back 24 hours later, well after the caffeine was out of their system, and they looked at more images of objects. And they were asked to label these pictures of objects as either old, meaning they'd seen them before, new, that they'd not seen before, or similar to the original images they'd seen. For example, a picture of a duck that they'd seen the day before, but perhaps taken from a slightly different angle. It turned out the people who had taken the caffeine were better at distinguishing the similar pictures from the original ones, and those who had received the placebo were more likely to incorrectly identify the similar images as the old ones they had seen before. The caffeine-induced ability to recognize similar but not identical images did not occur when people were given smaller doses of caffeine or when caffeine was ingested an hour before the picture test. On caffeine, the participants were more likely to identify the similar items correctly as similar and not old, not previously seen. In doing so, this demonstrates that the caffeine enhanced the brain's consolidation process. That's the process of making those items more permanent in their memory. The idea is that outside this lab, you could have the same benefit from your caffeine habit. It might allow you to remember things, to retain memories for a longer period of time and with more precision, even if you eliminate the other benefits of caffeine, as we well know, like attention, alertness, and vigilance. The study didn't actually prove that caffeine improves memory, however. One limitation is that the participants knew they were involved in caffeine research. In the United States, 80% of adults consume caffeine every day. That, according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Well, while it isn't necessarily hard proof, do you think it would do any harm to have 200 milligrams of caffeine within five minutes of looking at some things you needed to remember very well, as long as it was in the morning or late morning or at the very latest, very early afternoon. I certainly don't think that would do any harm. And based on this research, so far anyway, until there's uh, more definitive findings, we would have to say it would be expected to help you remember those things. Interesting stuff. All right, let's look at our next topic, and we're sticking with the theme of memory, and we're sticking with the theme of a common beverage and its effects on your memory, but we're now changing the effect on memory, and we're changing the beverage. It turns out that drinking alcohol is linked to faster mental decline in men. Middle-aged men risk a faster mental decline as they age if they've been drinking heavily for years, according to new research. The study was done on about 5,000 British civil servants, and it found that over a decade, the added decline 
was the equivalent of about two extra years of aging for a combined measure of mental abilities, like reasoning, and about six years for memory. The heavy drinkers' abilities were compared to those of men who drank moderately or those who abstained from drinking. Of course, it's no surprise that heavy alcohol consumption can affect the brain, but the study focuses on an age range that has received much less attention from alcohol researchers than the elderly and college students. The work was published online in the journal Neurology. Researchers found no such effect in women, but on the other hand, the study included too few female heavy drinkers to really test the effect of drinking the same amount as in men. So that's why the only reasonable conclusion based on the data they got uh, is in middle-aged men. Now, it wasn't possible to identify a specific minimum level of consumption at which the risk begins in men. But perhaps, um, although the article doesn't mention this, perhaps we can take uh, an excess of what is considered moderate limits of alcohol use for men, which is up to two servings a day. A serving is one 12-ounce beer, one standard glass of wine like they pour you in a bar or restaurant, usually five ounces, or one mixed drink with a standard ounce-and-a-half shot of liquor in it. Now, <clears throat> the study took data from over 20 years using questionnaires Researchers calculated the men's average daily intake of alcohol for the decade up to when they were an average of 56 years old, and then they tracked decline in mental abilities over the following decade from tests administered every five years. Accelerated decline was seen for the heaviest drinking group, which included 469 men with a wide range of alcohol intake. The minimum amount was the equivalent of about 13 ounces of wine a day or about 30 ounces of beer. The maximum was about three times that. So let's look at that. The minimum was, okay, 13 ounces of wine a day. Uh, so that's not quite three servings or 30 ounces of beer. Uh, again, so that's not quite three servings of beer. And the maximum was about three times that, so somewhere between eight or nine servings a day. Now, men drinking that minimum amount are not necessarily at risk for accelerated mental decline since the results pertain to the category overall. The study shows a link between drinking and faster mental decline, but not proof that the alcohol intake was responsible. Proof, get it? Pun intended. And uh, the lead author of the study also said that because of the sensitive mental tests used in the study, the extra declines in performance may be too subtle to make a difference in daily life. Still, the study certainly does suggest that middle-aged to young-old individuals do need to pay attention to what their drinking habits have been and are. All right, well, there you have it. So if you're a middle-aged to older man, avoid heavy drinking. 
or expect your memory to decline further. Some more news recently about the issue of uh, antidepressants uh, in pregnancy and I this uh, first article caught my eye because unfortunately we see lots of advertisements uh, put on TV by lawyers and they are scaring people who are taking antidepressants uh, about you know if you've had this medication and you've had this side effect call this 800 number you may be eligible for a settlement in a class action lawsuit and among them are talking about commonly prescribed antidepressants and uh, if the viewer was a woman who took any of them when she was pregnant with a child and if the child had any complications or birth defects or what have you. Well, so this article is about antidepressants in pregnancy being tied to a slight risk of a lung disorder in babies. Um, and we're going to take an objective look at this issue and some of the latest research behind it unlike the attorneys who put those advertisements on TV who are only interested in your helping them win big monetary settlements from drug companies uh, along the way. Yes, you're getting your share if there is anything coming. Taking certain antidepressants in late pregnancy more than doubles the odds of a lung complication in newborns, according to this new review. The good news is even double the normal odds of having this is still extremely, extremely low. The study also found the absolute risk of this complication, which this lung disorder, it's known as persistent pulmonary hypertension, sometimes abbreviated uh, PPHTN, was still very low. Okay, the absolute risk is about 3.5 babies of every 1,000 births. And obviously, if uh, there is any given person who has this happen to their baby, regardless of if they're one of just those 3.5 per 1,000, they're going to be very concerned. And later we'll get to exactly what persistent pulmonary hypertension is and how serious it is and what to do about it. Now, women taking these medications in pregnancy definitely should not panic. The risk of this complication is still quite low. It should be one of the factors you consider when you decide to use these medications or not. However, it's very, very important that this decision has to be balanced and take into account the potential problems that occur if you do not treat your depression or do, whether not taking medication or otherwise. Deciding how to treat depression during pregnancy certainly can be very difficult. The benefits of antidepressants have to be weighed against potential harms and compared to the potential risks of untreated depression. Untreated depression in a pregnant woman can lead to unhealthy eating habits, poor weight gain, in other words, inadequate weight gain, high blood pressure, inadequate prenatal care, and possible drug and alcohol abuse. Also, this is very important, untreated depression in pregnancy can lead to low birth weight 
and premature birth. It's also been linked to lower intelligence and behavioral problems as children grow up. All right. We'll talk more about this issue when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Cheryl Linker host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. Come on, follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Followsniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Followsniffles.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all mental health-related news. Also, a resource for you if you have any mental health-related questions, if you are suffering a mental health problem and you've not been able to get help with that or someone else you know is suffering from such a problem and you're not sure what to do, please feel free to use me as a resource. Send me your questions relating to mental health or your comments or feedback on the show to this email address, Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. We're talking about antidepressants used in pregnant women associated with a rare birth complication known as persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. And right before the break, it's important to remember what we were talking about. Without any treatment at all, depression during pregnancy leads to very severe complications in the newborn, such as low birth weight, premature birth, lower intelligence, behavioral problems. Also very, very important is the increased risk of postpartum depression if a woman's pregnancy is marked by depression and that is not properly treated. You need to be okay during pregnancy to feel well during the postpartum period. Now, persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, actually I misquoted the acronym for that before, it's PPHN. It's a known risk related to taking antidepressants that are known as the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Luvox, 
Celexa, and Lexapro. Now, that's not to say it can't happen with other types of antidepressants, but those are the most popular ones. Now, for a baby with PPHN, instead of the lungs relaxing after birth, they become somewhat resistant, meaning they don't expand as they should, and the result is the baby takes in less oxygen than normal. Treatments are available for PPHN. Most babies with the condition do well, but long-term risks are an area that need more research. This new study that we're talking about, published online in the January 14, 2014 issue of the British Medical Journal, pooled the results of seven previously completed studies of SSRIs during pregnancy and the risk of PPHN. The analysis found that taking SSRIs during early pregnancy didn't lead to a significantly increased risk of the lung condition, but when taken late in pregnancy, these medications were linked to a 2.5 times increase in the risk of persistent pulmonary hypertension. What this means is that between 286 and 350 women would need to be treated with an SSRI in late pregnancy to result in an average of one additional case of persistent pulmonary hypertension. Unfortunately, this may lead to advice such as, well, we'll take you off your medication late in your pregnancy. This is already being suggested to women to avoid a kind of neonatal withdrawal syndrome from the antidepressant. This is marked by some irritability and decreased muscle tone, which is transient and thus far has not led to any serious or permanent adverse effects. Now, if you combine that with the issue of persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn being uh, an increased risk when using SSRIs late in pregnancy, there could be more women advised to stop their antidepressant late in their pregnancy. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a bad idea because if you do that, you're going to put that woman at risk for having postpartum depression. In fact, if you were sadistic and you wanted the woman to have postpartum depression, I can think of no better way to do it than to tell her, stop your antidepressant late in pregnancy. Now, one difficulty the researchers looking at this issue of the PPHN was pinning down the precise meaning of late pregnancy. Previous studies in this issue had varying definitions. Late pregnancy could mean any time during or after the 20th week, or it could refer to just the third trimester. Now, although the study did find an increased risk of this lung complication, it was not designed to prove that the medications directly caused the problem. And it remains unclear exactly what is the mechanism behind how SSRIs could possibly cause persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. The study authors emphasize that women should not stop taking their medications. Instead, they should talk to their doctors if they have concerns. But I want you all to know that you talk to your doctor 
and they recommend that you come off your medication late in your pregnancy, you need to challenge that recommendation and then say, well, what about the risk of postpartum depression? Well, we'll start you on your medication right afterwards. You know what? That may not get the job done. Uh, I think uh, the facts are that a woman who stays feeling well during her pregnancy will feel well after she delivers, and that's going to help the baby. Obviously, decisions on treatments like taking antidepressants during pregnancy need to be personalized. Women need to make informed decisions by weighing the risks of depression without treatment and weighing the risks of treatments, including antidepressants. There are alternatives to antidepressants. Psychosocial treatments such as counseling are appropriate and very effective for some women depending on how severe the depression is and how quickly a woman might respond to treatment. There certainly are many women who could not respond to psychotherapy alone and for whom medication would be necessary to prevent her and her unborn fetus from having complications from her depression. <clears throat> and it's good to see someone trying to put all these studies together of this issue in a uniform way. The bottom line is the risk is very low, but it needs to be put into context with a woman's history, including especially if there was a history of previous depression. Treatment choices need to be individualized, and the risks of untreated depression on the fetus against the very low risks of this pulmonary complication have to be weighed. Now, we just talked about antidepressants in pregnancy and how if there is not sufficient treatment of depression during pregnancy, there's an increased risk of postpartum depression. This next article shows that postpartum depression is often linked to long-term problems. Up to a half of women who have had postpartum depression develop long-term depression, according to this new study. The findings show the need for doctors to closely monitor women with postpartum depression. Parental depression can harm a child's long-term development. And that's why you need to make sure that any postpartum depression is appropriately treated and that there is long-term follow-up to make sure there are no recurrent episodes of depression in the future beyond the postpartum period. Clinicians need to be aware of mother's previous episodes of depression and consider contextual factors heightening vulnerability for a chronic or long-standing course of depression. This study that we're talking about was published in the January issue of the journal Harvard Review of Psychiatry. Now for this report, Authors looked at studies of postpartum depression conducted between 1985 and 2012. The analysis revealed that 30% to 50% of women with postpartum depression developed long-term depression. Some of the studies suggested that younger mothers, those with lower incomes, and minority women were at increased risk of long-term depression. But the review authors said there was more consistent evidence for other risk factors, 
including a poor relationship with a partner, a history of depression or sexual abuse in the mother, high levels of parental stress, and certain personality traits. Colic or other illnesses in the infant did not appear to affect the risk of chronic depression. Postpartum depression can harm a child's development and it can do harm to the early relationship between mother and child. Knowledge about prolonged changes in the mental health of mothers with postpartum depression may not only improve our understanding of the course of this disorder, but also inform prevention and intervention strategies. In my opinion, the fact that postpartum depression can lead to long-term depression is even a greater argument for appropriately aggressive treatment of depression during pregnancy to prevent postpartum depression in the first place. And where the depression can be treated with just counseling and psychotherapy without medication, if appropriate, given the mother's history, that's fine, that's great. But if it, that is not possible, then uh, the fact that postpartum depression may occur and may lead to long-term depression is more of an argument in favor of using medication, if necessary, to treat depression during pregnancy. Now, with all the articles uh, and all the discussion that there is in the medical literature about medication during pregnancy, it seems to be restricted to just talking about depression and antidepressants. But certainly, there are many other categories of psychiatric medication that women take uh, for other types of psychiatric problems besides depression and antidepressants. A topic that is not discussed very much is adults who have ADHD and take medications for that disorder. And what happens if women on these medications become pregnant? And so since you rarely see this discussed, when I found this article about it, it definitely caught my eye and wanted to discuss that with you in case any of you out there are on medication for ADHD or you know women who are. Uh, but I think what we'll do is we'll get into that right after our next commercial break. So please come back for that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Are you into classic cars? Do you own a classic car? If so, you need to know J.C. Taylor Insurance, the absolute best place in the country for classic car insurance. They own classic cars, they support the industry, and have the best prices bar none. Go to jctaylor.com, get a quote, and tell them you heard about them on Radio Sandy Springs. Hi, everybody. It's Don Zabkar, your host for Who Knew? We air Mondays 2 to 3 on America's Web Radio and then occasionally throughout the week. We've got some great subjects. This administration or this regime, as you know, is providing us with great material. So stay tuned. Check us out. America's Web Radio. It's Who Knew with Don Zapkar. 
This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that snoring can lead to chronic health problems? Snoring can be a sign of sleep apnea. Snoring is simply noisy breathing that can disturb those around you. However, sleep apnea is a serious condition that leads to a decrease in oxygen in the blood. The brain and the heart are two organs that depend on oxygen to function well. Studies have shown that a lack of oxygen at night leads to weight gain, problems with memory and concentration, depression, high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and stroke. There are several ways to decrease snoring. For example, lose weight if you are overweight. Avoid alcohol at least three to four hours before bedtime. Stop smoking. Control nasal allergies to things such as dust and mold. And avoid eating dairy products such as milk and cheese. If you think you have sleep apnea, you should see a doctor to be evaluated. Please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all mental health-related news with you here on America's Web Radio. And now we're going to talk about ADHD in pregnancy. Uh, finally, an article about the effects of medication for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in pregnancy, uh, not just antidepressants and depression in pregnancy. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, otherwise known as ADHD, has primarily been recognized as a problem in children and in adolescents. However, healthcare providers are more and more coming to understand that this is also a problem for adults. It is no longer thought that this somehow resolves itself when you go through adolescence. It may be that if someone with ADHD has hyperactivity, that may resolve on its own. However, the attention deficit may persist well on into adulthood, if not for a lifetime. Therefore, many, many more adults are being treated for ADHD with medications, and therefore, more women of reproductive age are winding up on these medications. And the common medications for ADHD happen to be stimulants to the central nervous system, things like Ritalin or Adderall or Vyvanse and Focalin. So now, as women are being managed with these medications into adulthood, questions have begun to arise regarding the safety of these medications in pregnancy. So are these medications safe in pregnancy? Well, we don't really know. The truth is there simply have not been enough studies done on the safety of them during pregnancy to answer that question. We do know that women who take amphetamines in pregnancy will be at risk of lower birth weight babies. However, no evidence has been found to date that any fetal abnormalities will result. And so the body of evidence is simply too weak to draw any conclusions regarding the safety of these medications. <clears throat> However, increasing the risk of a lower birth weight baby certainly seems like more than enough justification to avoid using them in pregnancy. Stimulant medications like amphetamines are listed as a pregnant Pregnancy Category C by the FDA. Category C means that animal studies using the drugs in pregnancy have revealed adverse effects to pregnancies 
but that adequate human studies do not yet exist. At present, then, these drugs are considered that they may be prescribed if the benefit is felt to outweigh the risk. In most situations, however, it would be recommended to discontinue the medication in pregnancy and due to the passage of such medications into the breast milk the Food and Drug Administration recommends that mothers avoid breastfeeding if they're using these medications so what to do if you have ADHD and you're a woman and you're thinking about becoming pregnant or you've just found out that you're pregnant so if you have ADHD and you are taking stimulant medications Talk about the risk with your health care provider before getting pregnant. That's the key. Figure this out beforehand if you're on these medications. You may be advised to wean yourself off of the medications prior to pregnancy, which in my opinion is the best course of action. If you're pregnant right now and you've been taking the medications, again, work with your health care provider regarding these substances unless there are very, very significant benefits to continuing the medications that would outweigh the risks to the fetus, you would likely be advised to wean yourself off of the medication. If you do decide to continue them, your health care provider should monitor both you and your baby closely for any ill effects. And while the general advice given by this article is certainly nothing I could find fault with or disagree with, I think I would just make the point much stronger. If you're on these medications, uh, please plan pregnancies carefully, thoughtfully, and get off the medications prior to conception. If you find out you're pregnant and you're still taking them, my advice to you would simply be to stop. Uh, Where it concerns the benefits of ADHD medications and the risks of not taking them, you simply cannot compare the risks uh, of not taking them to the risks of not taking antidepressants. Uh, Depression is an illness that potentially could be life-threatening if not properly treated. And for some people who cannot be properly treated with counseling or psychotherapy alone, that means that antidepressant medications are potentially life-saving treatments and therefore cannot be sacrificed even in pregnancy. But when you're talking about ADHD, while I certainly uh, would point out that stopping the medication could cause significant impairment of functioning and uh, impair quality of life, I don't know that having to function with ADHD without taking medication would cause as much uh, distress or problems for the mother or uh, secondarily for the fetus. And uh, therefore, I think it's an easier decision either to wean off these amphetamine or other stimulant medications for ADHD prior to conception or stop them if you find out you're pregnant after the fact. I thought it was really good to see that finally there's something being written about that issue because uh, there's really not many people talk about that. Okay, now let's talk about teens and antidepressants. Primary care providers may balk at giving teens antidepressants. They are reluctant to prescribe antidepressants for teenage patients, even in cases of severe depression, according to a new study. 
Researchers found that primary care health providers who were more knowledgeable about depression, and especially those who could consult with an on-site mental health expert, were more likely to prescribe antidepressants for depressed teens. The study included 58 pediatric primary care providers. Most were doctors, some were nurse practitioners or other healthcare professionals. The study participants were given hypothetical situations describing two 15-year-old girls with depression. One girl met the criteria for moderate depression and the other for severe depression, but neither was suicidal. The participants were asked to make an initial treatment recommendation for each of the girls. Only one quarter of them said they would prescribe antidepressants for the girl with moderate depression, and one-third said they would do so for the girl with severe depression. The study was in the January issue of the Journal of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics. According to current guidelines, teens with moderate to severe depression should be treated with antidepressants and or a type of counseling or psychotherapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. Antidepressants have been deemed effective for patients with severe depression. 90% of the practitioners said they would refer the girl with severe depression to a child or adolescent psychiatrist for medication management, and 60% said they would do so for the girl with moderate depression. Good to hear that most of the practitioners would adhere to the proper course of action. Shame that most likely that girl's family would have a great deal of difficulty finding a child and adolescent psychiatrist who wasn't booked up many, many months in advance and who accepted their health insurance. Consultation with a mental health expert is recommended for teens with severe depression, not necessarily those with moderate depression, but clearly it is a good idea as the majority of the practitioners uh, made that recommendation for the moderately depressed girl. Now, those who had access to an on-site mental health provider were about five times more likely to recommend antidepressants for the teen girls. And that's a tremendously great argument for integration of care, a model that uh, advocates having uh, multiple different types of practitioners uh, under one roof, kind of like a clinic. Now, the, um, those with more just personal direct knowledge of depression uh, and not necessarily having an on-site mental health provider were about 70% more likely to recommend antidepressants. But practitioners were less likely to say they would prescribe antidepressants if they felt a higher sense of personal burden when seeing patients with mental health problems. That's pretty scary, isn't it? Do you mean to tell me that you're a healthcare professional? Granted, not a mental health care professional, but a healthcare professional nonetheless, and you feel a higher sense of personal burden when seeing a patient with depression. That's certainly pretty scary. The findings suggest that most pediatric primary care providers aren't comfortable recommending antidepressants for depressed teens. And this is bad news because we know teen depression is a serious 
an undertreated public health problem in the United States. And with the national shortage of child and adolescent psychiatrists, education interventions which take into account a primary care provider's feelings of burden when addressing mental health problems and also collaborative care with mental health professionals will be needed to increase appropriate prescribing of antidepressant medications to depressed adolescents. What I was frankly shocked about with this article is it didn't mention what I consider to be the huge elephant in the room where this issue is concerned. And that is that in the early 2000s, the Food and Drug Administration saw fit to add a very serious warning to the uh, prescribing information for all antidepressants that they may increase the risk of suicidal thinking and behavior in children and adolescents. They saw fit to add this warning, even though the vast majority of these medications are not approved to be prescribed to children and adolescents in the first place, or perhaps they did it because of that fact. Well, the result of this added very serious black box warning being put on the prescribing information for all antidepressants, that is what triggered a drastic drop in the prescribing of antidepressants by non-psychiatric physicians. And whereas rates of suicides, actual suicides, among children and adolescents have been decreasing up until that time, after that warning, rates of suicides among children and adolescents increased. It should also be noted that the studies that led to this warning included not a single child or adolescent who had actually committed suicide. So the warning did more harm than good. Well, I have to wrap up tonight's show almost out of time. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until the next time we get together. If not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.